before Eddie's lesson, it's going to be Ephesians 5. It's going to be verses 18 and 19. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Last uh, Sunday evening, we began what uh, will be a series of lessons uh, that uh, are centered in the statement made in Joshua chapter 4, verse number 21. We spent some time last week looking at that particular text. We'll not go back and, and go over uh, all of that again. But we're kind of using that as a springboard. And in Joshua chapter 4, this was when the people were, uh, the, the people under the leadership of Joshua were crossing the Jordan River to enter into the promised land. And God had instructed them that as they did that, they were to have selected uh, 12 men, one from each of the tribes. And as they crossed the river, uh, God would, would stop the waters where they could cross on dry land and these twelve selected men were to take, each of them, a stone out of that riverbed and carry it with them across. And when they reached the other side, they were to take those stones and place them together to uh, stack them on top of each other in a way that, that built uh, some type of a, uh, of a monument that was to be a memorial, uh, a memorial to the, uh, the, the blessing that God had given them of stopping the Jordan River and allowing them to cross so that they could possess the promised land. And what was stated to them in Joshua 4, verse 21, was this. When your children ask in years to come, what do these stones mean? Then you tell them. And drawing on that particular statement, when your children ask, we're going to be doing a series of lessons that deal with questions that many times our children will ask us. And hopefully we'll be able to uh, offer answers from the Word of God that can help uh, us uh, to know how to answer these questions, whether they come from our children or our grandchildren or whether they come from, from others. And one of the points that we also made last week is that many times these questions that we are asked spring from things that we do. We looked at a passage in Deuteronomy where, uh, where God told His people that they were to keep the law, and then right after He told them that, He said, and then when your children ask, what do these things mean, then you can tell them. And so oftentimes, as we live our lives as Christians, we give other people something to ask about. We give our children things to ask about as they see us living out the principles of New Testament Christianity. And so as we think about that particular, uh, that particular thing, uh, I want us to think about how many times the questions that we are asked by children or whoever uh, often involve things that make us different from others. Things that make us kind of stand out. Uh, and things that, uh, that highlight 
uh, our differences with other folks. And one of those areas of difference between churches of Christ, for example, and other churches has to do with the form or the style, if you will, of our music in our worship. As our children grow up and they, uh, and they notice perhaps as, or, or maybe they're told by, uh, by friends at school or they see perhaps on television, uh, you know, worship assemblies at other places and they notice that in other places they have, uh, you know, praise bands. Uh, and uh, and things like that. And then they, they, they see that we obviously don't have that. And so they may ask, why is that the case? As people who come and visit our assemblies from time to time, one of the first things that they notice about our assemblies is that particular difference. And oftentimes it leads to questions, why is that the case? Tonight I want to offer positive uh evidence or positive information or response to that question, why? What we won't have time to do tonight is to then address the responses that often come to that evidence. It's my hope to do that, uh, God willing, in next Sunday night's lesson along this same line. But tonight, I hope we can just answer the question, why? Why is that the case? And to do that, we're going to uh, address four specific questions along that topic. And the first one is this. Does God really care how we worship? This is one of the things that, that often comes up in discussions on this topic. And sometimes it comes down to that issue that some will say, well, you know, the, the how of worship is really not that important. That really the only thing God is concerned with is our motive, perhaps. Uh, is, our, is our heart in the right place? Are we wanting to do something that's good for God? Are we wanting to offer praise to God? And really that's more important than the actual expression of worship. That really we should just express our worship to God however we desire. That God doesn't really mind. He doesn't really care about that part of it, about how we express ourselves, as long as we're expressing ourselves in a sincere fashion. So does God care how we worship? Well, God has always cared about that. When you start from the very beginning, we see that God cares about worship. If God has spoken on any particular subject, be it worship or anything else, if God has spoken, then God has communicated through His speaking what He desires. And as individuals who are to approach God in worship, we find in Scripture that when God has spoken, God desires, expects for His people to approach Him in harmony with what He has said with regard to worship. Genesis chapter 4, at the very outset, we read about Cain and Abel. And their differences involve differences with regard to worship. Cain made an offering. Abel made an offering. They both approached God in worship. Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. 
Now, if one wants to argue that God doesn't really care about how we worship, then we're going to have a problem understanding Genesis chapter 4. We can't get four chapters into the Bible without coming into without coming face to face with this issue. There was something about Cain's worship that God did not accept. The writer of Hebrews helps us answer what that was. When the writer says in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses um, oh, 3, 4, in those early verses, he said, By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than did Cain. Abel's offering was made by faith. Abel's offering was made in accordance with him, Abel, taking God at his word. If faith indeed comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10 verse 17, then Abel offered his sacrifice based upon and in harmony with what God had revealed to him. And he approached God in that way by faith, by trusting in what God had said and in showing his trust by complying with what God had said. And Cain evidently didn't do that. That's why Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's accepted. God's always cared about worship and how we express ourselves to Him. Probably the classic Old Testament text that, that illustrates that point is Leviticus chapter 10, when Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, approached God in worship. And the Bible says that each of them took his censer. A censer was a little metal uh, pan, a little fire pan, on which you would put uh, hot coals and, and transport them. Well, each took his censer, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came down from heaven, came out from before the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So, Nadab and Abihu offered to God worship. God commanded incense offerings, and that's what they offered. They offered incense. But there was something about the fire that they used to offer that incense that Moses, who wrote Leviticus, said was unauthorized. Strange might be the word that you have in your translation. Strange fire. It means unauthorized. And it's translated that way in the ESV and some other translations. And it says that they offered that, and it was that which God had not commanded them. So they stepped outside of the bounds of what God had said, and they offered to God something that God had not instructed them to offer. And they paid the ultimate price for that. But what's interesting to me is the response in Leviticus 10, verse 3, the response that Moses gave to Aaron. Think about this. This is Moses speaking to the father of those two young men, who had just died in their presence. Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The point Moses was making was, this is, he said, he's essentially saying, now I understand what God meant. When God said, those who come before me, those who approach me and worship, 
will sanctify, will glorify me. In other words, God says, I'm not going to accept just anything that anybody offers. I will accept offerings of worship that bring me honor and that bring me glory. Well, what would have brought God honor and glory from Nadab and Abihu? Offering God what God had asked for. Not offering God what was unauthorized. Not offering to God something that He had not commanded them. If they had simply offered what God said He wanted, that would have brought God honor and glory. So does God care how we worship? Evidently, He does. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Jesus talked about some individuals who were worshiping God in vain. Worshiping God in a way that was worthless. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So these people, Pharisees, were teaching things that God had not taught. They were putting out the doctrines of men, but they were trying to pawn them off on the, on the people as commandments of God. God said that whole process makes their worship useless, makes it vain. So does God care how we worship? Well, evidently He does. If our worship can be vain and useless, then there must be something about worship that God desires that if we don't offer it to Him, our worship is not acceptable. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Evidently, there are some imperatives about worship. Jesus didn't say those who worship God may, might, can, could, or should, but they must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What needs to be engaged in our worship is, first of all, our spirits. God's not interested in cold formalism that's devoid of heart. If we try to offer God worship that is perhaps acceptable in the externals, in other words, if our expression of worship in the, in the, in the action itself is acceptable, but our hearts are not engaged in the process, then that's not acceptable. Worship must be in spirit. But it also must be in truth. It needs to be offered according to what God has revealed. God's Word is truth, John 17, 17. When we worship God in truth, we're worshiping Him according to the truth that He has revealed. Paul in Colossians 3, verse 17 said, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through Him. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The name of Jesus stands for who He is. It has to do with His identity as Son of God, as the authoritative one. We understand that terminology, don't we? In doing something in the name of someone else, we mean by that, as did Paul, to do something by that person's authority, with his sanction, with his approval. So to do something in the name of Jesus 
doesn't mean that whatever it is that we're doing, we just kind of throw His name out there, and by using His name, it automatically sanctifies the practice. We can do something and claim to be doing it in the name of Jesus and not actually be doing it in the name of Jesus. If it's not by His authority, if it doesn't have His sanction, if it doesn't have His approval, then it's not being done in His name, even if we may claim it's being done in His name. Doing something in the name of Jesus is not something you say, it's something that you do. And so whatever we do needs to be done with His sanction, with His authority, with His approval. And that includes our worship. So does God care how we worship? Certainly He does. He always has. Question two. Well, then what kind of music has God said that He wants in worship? Has God said, let's back up a little more, has God identified, has He specified the kind of music that He desires in worship? Well, indeed He has. And what kind of musical expression is that? Well, we read earlier Ephesians 5, verse 19. That's one of the passages that addresses this concept, this idea of worshiping God in a, in a way that involves all of us together. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So there are two things involved there. There's the singing, there's the, there's the vocal expression, and the engaging of the heart. Singing and making melody in the heart to the Lord. So we have the outward expression and we have the inner uh, involvement of the heart, just like we talked about from John 4, verse 24. You could read Colossians 3, verse 16, and find a similar wording. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The verbal expression, singing, the engaging of the heart. And when you read in the New Testament, about the kind of music that God wants for His church in this life to offer to Him, that's what you find. You find a reference to singing. Well, that leads to the next question. Is playing the same as singing? And this is where, this is where the matter comes to its head. This is where we have to discern exactly what God has said and make sure we understand the difference between what God has said He wanted and what sometimes is being offered to Him. And the simple answer to that question, is playing the same as singing, is, is no. And I think we all understand that principle. Playing music is not the same as singing. It's a different kind of music than the kind that God said He wanted us to do when we worship Him. Now, had God merely said, make music in your worship, then we would have been authorized by God to make whatever kind of music we wanted to make. Because make music is a generic statement that involves and would include and allow for any kind of music. 
But God didn't just specifically say, or generically say rather, just make music in your worship. He specifically said, sing in your worship. And so, if we're going to offer to God the kind of music that He said in Scripture that He desires, then we will sing. Recognizing that there are other kinds of music that God didn't specifically say He wanted. Let me offer an example that might help illustrate the point. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He specified in His doing that the food elements that were to be used in that observance. Unleavened bread, fruit of the vine, the juice of the grape, in other words. And when Jesus specified those elements, did He, in specifying those elements, authorize other elements that we could use? In other words... Could we take for the Lord's Supper and just put any kind of food items on there that we want? Did God give us the sanction, the authority, the permission, if you will, to use whatever food we want in the Lord's Supper? Could we put bacon? Could we put, um, uh, you know, iced tea, sweet tea? We don't have the authority to do that because... Jesus specified what He wanted. And if we want to stand in His authority or on His authority, then we'll use what He specified was to be used. Had He just simply said in, in instituting the Lord's Supper, eat something, drink something, then we'd have the authority to eat whatever we wanted in, in the observance and drink whatever we wanted. But that's not what He did. He made specification, which gives us the authority to use what he specified. It doesn't give us the authority to use something else. So when God specified singing, which is a, which is a particular kind of musical expression, then that's what he authorized. He didn't, in authorizing singing, also authorize other types of musical expression. So that's why we sing. And so it, when your children ask, why do, why do we sing without playing when we worship? It ultimately comes down to a matter of authority. What has God authorized us to do? And that's what God has authorized. But let me add one more question and an answer that I think has some bearing on this on this question, and that has to do with whether or not the church in the beginning used instruments in their worship. In other words, we see that, that Paul does mention singing, but, but you know, did, was that just for that congregation? In other words, did other churches use it? And the answer to that is no, they didn't. Under the guidance of the Lord's apostles, instrumental music was not used in the worship of the church for centuries. Even though, incidentally, it was used in the culture, 
There were, you know, musical instruments did exist at the time that the church was established, and they were utilized in other areas of people's lives. But when those same people came together to worship, they didn't use them. And historians are unanimous in this. Regardless of religious affiliation or no religious affiliation at all, historians are united. They are unanimous in recognizing the fact and pointing out the fact that instruments were not used in Christian worship for multiplied centuries after the church was established in the first century. And not only are they not mentioned as having been used in the early church, they are very explicitly condemned in the writings of early church historians. Which tells us that again, under the direct guidance of the apostles, that Jesus promised would be guided into all truth, John 16, 13. And they would be, and, and he would bring to their remembrance all things that he said to them, John 14, 26, to guide the early church in its infancy until the scriptures themselves were completed. Under the direct guidance of inspired apostles of Jesus Christ, the church did not use them. Now that ought to tell us something. That if God wanted them to be utilized in the worship assemblies of the church, evidently the apostles didn't know it. Because they didn't teach it. They didn't use it. So their absence from the record of history tells us something as well. The first recorded instance of the use of instrumental music in a, in a worship assembly is in about 670 A.D. Almost 700 years after Jesus and the apostles lived. And this was in a Catholic church in the city of Rome in A.D. 670. Now that's the first recorded instance of one ever being utilized. But even at that, it would still be another 500 plus years before instruments were generally accepted by churches that wore the name of Jesus. In other words, it would be in the 1200s A.D. before instrumental music was accepted among Christian, if you will, churches. And so they weren't even used in history for that long. I would add, too, that there are some famous historical figures who spoke out against their use. And I find this interesting. I want to read you some of these quotes, and then I'll tell you why I read them in just a moment. Here's what John Calvin said about instrumental music in worship. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, um, uh, who saw so many problems and issues with, uh, with Roman Catholicism that, that he and others uh, tried to reform uh, that movement, and one of the things that he was staunchly opposed to was instrumental music in worship. John Calvin wrote this, Men who are fond of outward pomp 
may delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostle is far more pleasing to him. End quote. Charles H. Spurgeon, recognized as one of the uh, foremost uh, Baptist preachers of a few generations ago, said this, We might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Adam Clark. Some of you may have copies of Clark's commentaries. Uh, Adam Clark was, was a Methodist, and he wrote these words, I am an old man and an old minister. And I here declare that I never knew them, talking about musical instruments, I never knew them productive of any good in the worship of God. And have had reason to believe that they were productive of much evil. Music as a science I esteem and admire. But instruments of music in the house of God I abominate and abhor. This is the abuse of music. And here I register my protest against all such corruptions in the worship of the author of Christianity. <laughs> That's pretty strong words. Those are stronger words than I've used tonight. John Wesley said this, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. Now, I mention these quotes not because these men are the final authority. They're not. They're men. They weren't inspired men. So they're not the final authority. It's not just because these men say so that, uh, that we have taken our stand, certainly. But I mention them for this reason. To show that opposition to the instrument, first of all, is not recent. And second of all, this opposition has not been confined to churches of Christ. Now, while we are among the, the few these days who still insist upon a cappella music in our worship, it's not always been the case. The bottom line is this. Instrumental praise and worship has only been widely accepted for about eight centuries. For the first 13 centuries, they pretty much were not used at all. So, when your children ask, does God care how we worship? He does. He always has. Well, then what has God asked? What, what, what kind of music has God said that He wants in our worship? Singing. But is playing the same as singing? No, it's not. It's a different kind of music than what God said. And the church didn't use them under the direction of inspired apostles. And you don't find them being authorized in Christian worship in the New Testament. And so on the side of a cappella music in worship is the testimony of the New Testament and the testimony of history. And it's because of what the New Testament authorizes, it's because of that that we worship in song the way we worship in song. It's because we want to do what God has said that He wants for us to do in our worship. 
Now, having said all of that, there are still some puzzling questions. And many times when this material, if you will, is is presented, when these answers are given to the question, many times other questions come up. For example, but aren't there, isn't instrumental praise mentioned in the Old Testament? I mean, can't you open up the book of Psalms and read in many of the Psalms how there were even commands to worship God with the harp and with the lyre and with these other musical instruments? Yes, it is all over the Old Testament. Well, what bearing does that have on our worship today? That's a good question. What about the question of cultural relevance? Some will say, well, you know, if we're going to reach a culture that is uh, so accepting and involved in the use of of instrumental music in other areas, in, in, in areas outside of worship, secular music and such. It's so much a part of our culture. If we're going to reach the culture, don't we need to incorporate that style of music into our worship so that we become more relevant to our culture? That's a good question too. What about songbooks? You talk about not using instrumental music because the New Testament doesn't mention them, but the New Testament doesn't mention songbooks, and yet you use them. Isn't that inconsistent? That's also a good question. Do I have to come back next week to get the answers to those questions? Now, I do want to give sufficient time to answering those and perhaps some other Objections that are often brought up with regard to these questions. What do we do about cultural relevance? How do we handle the Old Testament passages? What about songbooks? Well, we'll talk about those next week, God willing, if we meet again at 6 p.m., which is, of course, our plan. I hope, if nothing else tonight, I hope that we realize, above all else, that God does care. He cares about what we do. He cares about how we worship. He cares about how we approach Him. And so it's not not acceptable for us to simply approach God however we want to approach God. God is the one who is sovereign. He is Lord. He is Master. He is our Creator. And we stand before Him as His created ones who owe everything to Him. And so we worship God because it's right to worship God. And if we would be loyal subjects as we ought to be, then we will desire only to approach God in the way that God has authorized us to approach Him. We don't have the right to approach the Creator of the universe any old way we want to. How approaching God? I suspect in this assembly uh, that uh, this particular application of that principle that we've looked at tonight, instrumental music, is not uh, so much the issue. But maybe the principle can find another application in your life. Are you really living life 
as a loyal subject to God like you should, if you realize that you're not, recognize, I hope tonight, that God does care about that and that we should approach Him and live for Him as He has expressed Himself to us in Scripture. If you're not yet one of His children, you can't be saved any way you want to either. God has said, here's what a person must do in order to be saved. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sins and penitence. Confess your faith in Christ. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how God has said we are to approach Him for salvation. Have you done that? If you haven't, allow us to help you to complete your obedience to the gospel. And if we may do that tonight, we invite you to come as we stand and sing together.